How y'all doing? Amen. Praise God. We are um, moving into the second part of a uh, study on a very popular passage, a passage about Jesus Christ being a shepherd worth following, Jesus Christ being the good shepherd, the ultimate shepherd. Um, we talked a lot last week um, um, about, about the, the thieves and the robbers of this story and how Jesus in so many ways is, 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 is actually kind of making, uh, bringing us back to the Old Testament in this particular chapter. He's taking us back to the Old Testament and he's really speaking in particular about Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34 is a very popular passage about, about shepherds and shepherds that instead of, instead of um, pastoring the, the sheep as they should and leading the sheep as they should and watching over the sheep as they should, they are actually fleecing the sheep and using the sheep for their own benefit, their own service, their own, their own gain, so to speak. And, and, and God promises in Ezekiel 34 that I will... Okay, I will come down pretty much and I'll be your shepherd because there is no other shepherd that is doing this right. All the shepherds in Israel are taking advantage of you. They're messing this up. Um, And so I will be your shepherd and I will be your shepherd through my son, David. All right. So the son, so David will be your shepherd. And we talked about the fact that David had already passed centuries ago. So who was Jesus taught? I mean, who was God the father talking about? And we connected the dots to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was of the lineage of David. He was a son of David. And so he was the shepherd to come that would finally, he would be God on earth. He would be God coming down and leading the sheep in the way that they should be led. And, 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 and pasturing the way that they should be pastured. And, and those sheep would hear his voice. They would, and when they heard his voice, they would know him and they would respond to him and they would follow him. All right. And so, and so all of that was talked about last week. And so the idea may be for some of you that, okay, we, we, we've talked about this passage. So really what else is there to talk about? He's still talking about sheep and he's a shepherd and there's some robbers. And so, what else is there to talk about? Well, the, the, the passage is not just a, a regurgitation over 21 verses. The passage begins talking about one element of shepherding. And, it, and, and, and by the time you get to verse 6 and 7 and moving out of that, it's actually expanding that imagery of shepherding. It's talking about different elements and different sides and different facets of shepherding. And Jesus is using each one of those facets to connect a point to, all right? So he's making an abundance of points out of this one metaphor, okay? And because of that, the, even the metaphor itself doesn't have any consistency. And what I mean by that is that there's going to be times where the robbers are hired hands. And there's going to be times that the shepherd is the door. But the point isn't consistency. Jesus is just using different elements of this metaphor of shepherding and tying it back to his example or to the people of the story, the characters of this story, which is him and the robbers and the thieves or the religious leaders, him and the religious leaders. And so they're going to take on different pieces of this metaphor as we work through this story. Does that make sense so far? 
Okay, so looking at verse 7, let's look at verse 7 together where, where Jesus begins to unpack or expand on the metaphor that, we had, that he had been building on in verses 1 through 5. He says, actually beginning at verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and I will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy, and I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. If anyone enters by me, if anyone enters by me, we need to spend time unpacking each one of those words in that small phrase. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. First, first of all, notice the reach of the offer. If anyone enters by me. Christ does not limit the offer to those of us with the right pedigree or the right race or the right educational background or the right income bracket or those of us with the the clean and righteous history amongst us. Instead, he extends the offer to anyone who will declare him as Savior and Lord. Anyone who comes or enters by me. Anyone who will turn from seeking to live life according to their own way according to their own fashion, and instead trust him enough to pursue a life his way, Christ's way, Jesus' way. In fact, in noticing the reach of the offer, let us also not miss the action of the offer. If anyone enters by me, the entrance is the response of faith and repentance. And so it is, a, it is an action. So we talked about last week how the sheep themselves are being called out by God and they hear his voice and they respond. So there is a spiritual empowerment in which the sheep can't respond without God. But yet at the same time in in God's mystery, there there is a personal response involved in us actually entering. If anyone enters, he calls us to enter even though he is empowering our call to respond. Does that make sense? So he's, first of all, I know it doesn't make sense. Because it's mysterious, all right? Very mysterious. Deep things belong to the Lord. And so he is empowering the call and, res- and calling you to respond even as he's empowered. To give you, to give you another example, you, you've probably, how, how many people, don't raise your hands. I don't want to make anybody shame in this room. But the Bible reading plan, right? We're, we're, we're in some latter chapters of Exodus Some of you guys have been following along and reading Exodus. One of the things that you notice in Exodus, in the earlier parts of Exodus, is that God talks to Moses and he tells Moses that, all right, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh um, to 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 let my people go so that they can go and they can worship. Three days journey, um, they can worship me and offer sacrifices to me, right? And and he says, listen, now Pharaoh's not going to listen, all right? He's not going to listen. He's going to be very hard-headed about it, but I want you to go. And eventually, Pharaoh's going to see my power, and he's going to respond accordingly. All right, so Moses goes, and, and you notice that throughout the story, there's like this moment where Pharaoh is saying, enough is enough. All right, God, let's, Moses, Moses, okay, take your people, get out of here. And then something mysterious happens. It says that God hardens his heart. Did you see that? Now, Pharaoh is still held liable, and yet God is hardening his heart. That's mystery. That stuff belongs to God, not me, okay? And so if, you want, if you're looking for an explanation as to what God is doing in that, can't give it to you. 
All I can know, all I can tell you is that something is happening divine and sovereign and God is controlling all of it, okay? And so even in our salvation, God is controlling all of this redemptive story even as he's calling us out into it. And so if anyone enters, he's still making a call and beckoning sheep to come. If anyone enters by me, faith and repentance is the entrance or the key or the fee to get through the gate. But then it's the source of the offer. If anyone enters by me, in these words, Jesus is declaring his exclusivity. Jesus Christ is the only door through to the safety and the security and the plenty of the green pastures that all the sheep so desperately need and so desperately want. Jesus is. That's it. No matter what assurances you have been given, no matter what promises you have heard declared, Jesus is the only one to the greener pastures of eternity. This is not the first time that we hear this. It's not, this will not be the last time we hear this. As a matter of fact, Skip four, uh, four, four chapters later, and you hear Jesus say this in verse 6 of chapter 14. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's Jesus' words. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am that door that leads to the green pastures. Jesus never defines himself as another way among many. He always defines himself as the only way. And the question is the only way to what? Well, I said greener pastures. He will be saved is, is, is what the verse continues to say. He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And what does that pasture mean? Well, first of all, we freeze on the word saved. Saved from what? Saved from the eternal wrath of God towards sinners because of their sin. And the pastures being what? The eternal life eternal satisfaction. In other words, the pastor, the ideal of the pastor, think about, think, about, think about a sheep or a group of sheep grazing through endless pastures fully satisfied, never in lack. That's what God is leading us to, right? That's the door that Jesus represents. As we walk and enter through Jesus, we find ourselves in the greener pastures with no lack. That's what eternal life looks like for us. So the only way to salvation and satisfaction, the only way to rescue and rest is through Jesus. Anyone can come. Anyone can come. But it's only through him. Does that make sense with you? Anyone can come, but no one can come apart from the Son of God. In Christ, we receive what we can't receive from anything else, from anywhere or any, any, uh, any other person. We receive real lasting comfort, real lasting security, real eternal satisfaction because we receive God himself. And in so receiving him, we receive everything throughout the rest of eternity. Now, verse 10 gives us a, a contrast, though. So there is this door, but then it talks about this thief. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so he immediately moves from this door to going kind of flip-flopping back to shepherding. He talks about thieves and the thieves and that they come to steal, kill, and destroy. But the shepherd, the good one, comes to give life and bring life and lead to life. Now, I'm not sure where this all went south in the past, right? Because I've used it 
and later on realized it was inaccurate. But if you've been following the flow of this passage for the past two weeks, what you've learned is that the thief ain't the devil. Okay, sorry to break that to y'all. Y'all look stunned, okay? But, but, but the thief isn't the devil. So, 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 so there's been times, I'm sure, you, I'm sure all of us grew up, Basically saying, the thief come to steal, kill, and destroy, and we immediately lash that onto the devil. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy because we've read this verse and assumed that Jesus was talking about the devil in this verse. And he's not. He's talking about the religious leaders in this verse. Do you notice that throughout this entire passage, never has there been a time where the devil was mentioned? But the religious leaders were. Now, Now, as we talked about last week, you have to go back to chapter 9 to understand that. Does that make sense? So going back to chapter 9, you realize the audience is the, the thieves and robbers are the religious leaders. And so this metaphor continues. And as he's talking about thieves and as he's talking about higher hands, he's still talking about religious leaders. Now, the devil may steal, and he certainly does destroy. He's probably knocked off a few folks in his day. But he is not the point of the passage. Does it make sense? The religious leaders are. Now hear me, it doesn't mean that the devil doesn't have a place in this text. His influence is obviously surrounding the religious leaders, okay? He, his, his influence, his sway, he himself takes on the nature and the character of a thief. He fleeces the sheep like no other religious leader can. But this is a lesson about context that I'm trying to teach that I have to learn myself even reading this passage. We must let God speak for himself, and his scripture is the most natural conversation that he gives to us. Does that make sense? And so what often happens in our study of scripture is that when we, what happens when we cherry-pick verses from the whole of the passage instead of reading them in their full and complete context, it can, it can be like or can be compared to someone coming in on the tail end of a conversation that they really, really, really needed to hear. Does that make sense? So you walk in on the tail end of the conversation, and like the last words they say, and we're going to kill them, right? It's like, well, hold on a second. Who, who, who are they going to kill? You know what I mean? What's going on? I mean, who, who are they going to kill? Are they going to kill me? Are they going to kill my kids? Are they going to, I mean, oh, oh, goodness, goodness gracious, we got to pack our bags. You know, let's get out of here. They said they're going to kill us. And then you get back and you realize that, okay, wait a second. Oh, you guys are going to kill the church league basketball team that you're playing against tomorrow. Now, oh, okay, that makes sense. Well, this is what happens oftentimes when we look at the scriptures. We come in on the tail end of the conversation and we read, and the thief came to kill, steal, and destroy. And we say, oh, well, there it is, the devil. But if we read the whole context, if we're a part of the whole conversation, we realize that it's something else. So can the devil be applied here? Sure he can. Is the devil the point of that word? No, he's not. Does it make sense? Make sense? Okay, need head nods on that one because that's important for you guys. When you go home and start reading your Bibles, making sure that make sure that you are not just cherry picking verses that you like. Make sure that you aren't just picking them out of their context. Okay, make sure you are reading them in light of the whole because the whole changes the text significantly at times. So he's talking about thieves. He's talking about robbers. And when he when I'm, I'm actually lost my place here. My my whole Bible, my whole uh, laptop closed up, closed up on me. People are like, well, that's why you need your notebook then and stop bringing that electric stuff up here. I get it. I get it. We must let God speak for himself, okay? So 
this is, what I'm, this is what I'm trying to get to. We know from the context that the immediate application for the thief Jesus is speaking of is the religious leaders, all right? That he is in the discussion, but a broader application can be anyone or anything that stands outside of Jesus and promises the same thing that we can only receive through him. That's the broader application. The thieves reflect the dangers on the outside of the gate. The thieves can't get you in. They are nowhere close to getting into the greener pastures, getting near the security, getting near the comfort, getting near the the peace and the satisfaction, getting near where God is. Only Christ can get you there. He is the door. But it doesn't stop the thieves from promising it to you. You understand that? So throughout history and even today, we have had people come along and promise the salvation that only Christ can give. They promise relief from the sufferings of this life. They promise relief from the struggle of this life. They offer hope. They offer utopias. They offer perfect places. They offer perfect peace. But it always comes outside of Christ, and it always comes from the wrong angle. Speaking of one. In the 1930s, Germany was reeling from their military defeat in World War I. Really. Economic depression was at, was, at a, was at a high in their community, in their country. It was sweeping their country, but not only their country, it was sweeping other countries during that time. The German people had very little confidence in their government at this point because they were poor, they were beaten, they were broken, busted and disgusted, as some folks would say. And they were without hope. And in the midst of that climate rose a charismatic leader by the name of Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler. These words are from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum website. Hitler was a powerful and spellbinding speaker who attracted a wide following of Germans desperate for change. He promised to disenchanted a better life A new and glorious Germany, the Nazis appealed especially, listen, to the unemployed, young people, and members of the lower middle class, small store owners, office employees, craftsmen, farmers, people looking for what? Hope. You tracking with this? People fed up. The party's rise to power was rapid. Before the economic depression struck, the Nazis were practically unknown. So before the hard times came, nobody was paying attention to him. Winning only 3% of the vote to Reichstag, Germans' parliament, in in the elections of 1924. But in the elections of 1932, the Nazis won 33% of the vote. So they went from 3% of the vote to 33% of the vote. In January 1933, Hitler was appointed chancellor, the head of the German government, and many Germans believed, listen, that they had, that they had found a savior for their nation, end quote. Did you hear it? In the absence of hope came someone promising to fix it, fix it. And they spoke to the people that had lost it that had lost hope. A thief saw the sheep ripe for the picking. If you ever wonder how a country could get to a place where a man is able 
to gleefully execute or see to it that six million people are executed because of nothing else but their ethnicity, then look no further than the misplacement of hope. The most vicious thieves know how to get people to turn their focus away from their or from our biggest problem by making the minor problems ultimate problems. They're the ones in your ear screaming that your biggest problem is your lack of money. And your biggest problem is your lack of power. Your biggest problem is your lack of, of expression. You don't, you're, you don't get a chance to express yourself like you should. And so, but, but sometimes the thieves can be even more sinister when they say, when they, when they, when they take those problems, those problems that aren't your biggest problems and make them your ultimate problems. And then they say, you know what? The reason you have those problems is because of them. The reason that your money is lacking is because of them. The reason that your power is lacking is because of them. The reason that you're, you're losing your power is because of them. The reason that you're losing your money is because of them. Or they go even farther and say, no, money's not your biggest problem. Power's not your biggest problem. They are your biggest problem. And so black people begin to say, my biggest problem is white people. All of them. My, my white people begin to say, my biggest problem is black people, all of them, nativists and Amer- American nativists or French nativists or European nativists, because it's happening all over our world right now. And so in every country, they're saying our biggest problem is the people on the outside trying to get here. That's our biggest problem. We fix that. Then there's hope. See, dehumanization doesn't just spring up from nothing. The denouncement of of dignity does not just pop up from nowhere. It springs up from promises that are made. Promises that once that problem is settled, once that problem is fixed, then everything will be good. You will have peace. You will have hope. You will have security. All you have to do is get rid of that. And the reality is is that you have none of those because the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. D.A. Carson says of this type of thief, while the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus comes that they may have life and have it to the full. The world still seeks its humanistic political saviors, its Hitlers, its Stalins, its Mayos, or its Mayos, its Pol Pots, and and only too late does it learn that they blatantly confiscate personal property, they they come only to steal, ruthlessly trample human life underfoot, they come only to kill, and contemptuously savage all that is valuable they came to destroy. See, here's the thing was three things, by the way. I'm not sure why I put four fingers. But here's the thing. They always promise you what they cannot give. Anybody that begins to promise you utopia should be looked at with a crooked eye. Anybody that promises you that if we could just get rid of them or we could just get rid of this or get rid of that, then everything goes good. 
should be looked at with crooked eyes. But what ends up happening is that because we so yearn to have it, we grow silent. When in the pursuit to get it, people are trampled on. We say, well, I mean, at least it's not me, right? Right? Better them than me. I'm I'm trying to get somewhere. Somebody's told me about hope. I'm trying to get there. These flesh and blood thieves aren't the only ones making promises, though. There's, there's inanimate thieves. There are functional saviors, if you will. In the book, in, in the book uh, by Jerry Bridges and Bob Bevington called The Bookends of, Christ, of the Christian Life, they write about humanity's relationship with functional saviors, and they say this. Listen to this. Functional saviors can be any object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity, our security, and significance because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. They preoccupy our minds and consume our time and our resources. They make us feel good and somehow even make us feel righteous. Whether we realize it or not, they control us and we worship them. Sadly, we're all prone to embrace functional saviors. We must identify and reject them, but it's not easy. Our deceitful hearts clutch, cloak, and protect them. And functional saviors take many forms. For some, it takes the form of a self-destructive addiction. For others, it could be something that otherwise would be good or harmless if if they weren't dependent on it. It could be television, family, friends, sleep, caffeine, partying, not partying, eating, not eating. It could be career, fashion, investment accounts, approval of others, material possessions, peer status, good looks, recreation, spectator sports, having a clean house or not clean at all, working out at the gym. It could be just about anything, including moderate living, philanthropic giving, or even ministry. These saviors do the exact same thing as the flesh and blood ones. They misplace our hope by redirecting what our biggest problems are. They tell us that life without them is our greatest problem, don't they? You know what I'm talking about? Eric Raymond helps us think through uh, our functional saviors by asking a a couple of questions. I want you to listen to a few of these questions and see how your life aligns or see how the things in your life align with these questions. Listen to them. What am I most afraid of? What do I long for most passionately? What do I complain about the most? What angers me the most? What makes me the happiest? What has caused me to be angry at God? What do I brag about? What do I want to have more than anything else? What do I sacrifice the most for in my life? If I could change one thing in my life, what would it be? What comfort do I treasure the most? See, these kind of questions unveil sometimes in our heart what may be Savior. Does it make sense? When I wake up in the morning, what am I thinking about? What's on my mind when I wake up? And what's on my mind when I go to bed? Those oftentimes speak to us as things that we are depending on for hope, things that we are depending on for satisfaction, things that we are depending on for perfect peace, things that we are depending on for joy, thieves in the midst of sheep, promising things that they ultimately cannot get. 
Jesus is the only one that gives us real and true life. Jesus properly diagnoses our biggest problems, and he properly remedies our biggest problems. And when our eyes are open to see what our biggest problems are, which is the sin that has run rampant in this world and rampant in our lives, then that's when hope flourishes because we see that he's already solved that, right? And so we don't get bent out of shape when we lose all the other things or when the things, when, when some of those things grow to grow from plenty to lack. We don't get bent out of shape because we still say, but my biggest problem has been solved. Turn your eyes away from false saviors. And that's not just for the unsaved, but that's for the saved. Because there are times even in our saved lives where we just kind of linger back over to those functional saviors. Fix our eyes. Fix your eyes on the only one that saves. All right, let's, let's, let's come out of that and let's back into this last part as we work through these last verses for a minute. Verse 18, verse 11 through 18, Jesus again switches the metaphor. He goes back to speaking of himself as shepherd. But this time, he's the good shepherd. But before we get to Jesus being the good shepherd, let's focus our our attention a little bit on what he applies to the religious leaders. Now, now the religious leaders aren't thieves. They actually are something else. Let's look at verse 12. He says, he, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep and sees the, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And so here there's, there's a quality to this that we should take, that we should, that we should sense that maybe the hired hand isn't as sinister as the thief and the robber. Does that make sense? He's willing to stick around as long as there's some benefit for him or her. They'll hang out and, you know, they'll manage the sheep as best they can. As long as there's nothing in there that will push them to sacrifice anything of themselves. Are you tracking with that? So, so, so the higher hand is not necessarily a sinister religious leader, someone who is corrupt or a political leader or whomever, someone who is corrupt to the core, but it, but, but it could be someone who, fairly decent person, fairly decent guy, fairly decent gal, but just isn't interested in investing any more than they really have to to preserve themselves. So he's talking to two dynamics of religious leadership here. The hired hand is, is, is a coward. He, he, he says that who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. He is a coward, but he's a coward because he has no vested interest in the sheep that he is shepherding. He risks nothing. He sacrifices nothing. When, when, when it is, when it is, when, the only time he does sacrifice is when it is appropriate for him in order to manipulate or to bring benefit back to himself. If he's manipulating or bringing benefit back to himself, he will sacrifice. But other than that, he's not putting in any more skin than he has to. He abandons the sheep. The hired hand leaves the sheep to fend for themselves in their most vulnerable moments. He poses as a savior. He poses as a shepherd. He poses as one that can lead them into green pastures until the wolf comes. And when the wolf comes, he has no answers for them. 
When the wolf comes raging, when real problems come raging into the sheepfold. In the moment that they most desperately need him, that's the moment that he flees. You tracking with that? And not only does he flee, but he watches and observes while they are destroyed and while they are scattered. He deserts them when the wolf starts dividing them. He is not a means of reconciliation. We can't depend on him to help bring the sheep together. Instead, he allows the wolf to separate them. Any religious leader or any leader for that matter that that seems to relish and seems to enjoy, seems to take no grief in seeing the separation of the people of God from one another should be looked upon with suspicion. Are you tracking with that? This is hard to preach, all right? But I'm trying to be a sheep or shepherd, right? Trying to be the courageous one that God has called me to be. Nowhere near as courageous as he is. But trying to follow his footsteps. The hired hand's concern is for himself. What's the benefit for me? What's the safety? What's the security? What's the protection? And he will stay as long as those things are met. But at the moment that those things flee, so will he. But notice the contrast of Jesus. It says, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So what do you see when you envision a shepherd? What do you see when you think about shepherding? Think about some guy, long hair, soft clothes, soft hands, frolicking through the grass. What do you see when you see sheep? I mean, shepherds, right? Doesn't sound fierce. That doesn't sound ferocious. For Pete's sake, the guy's hanging out with sheep. I mean, how, how tough do you have to be to hang out with sheep, right? But David gives us a peek into the shepherd that Jesus is talking about. He says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David, when, when he says, Listen, I'm going to take on Goliath. And everybody says, Man, listen, you don't want none of that. Come, pipe down. You don't want any of that. And David was like, well, no, hold on, hold on, you don't understand. No, I, I, I was a shepherd for my father. And when I was a shepherd, there were lions that I took down, grabbed them by the hair and slayed them. There were bears that I took down, grabbed them by the hair and slayed them. If, if there were tigers there, I would have did the same thing. Some of y'all don't get that. Grabbed them by the hair and slayed them. It does not, it does not matter. And so, and so the ideal of shepherds, right, is to be, it, the good shepherd should be juxtaposed to David's type of shepherding. In other words, Jesus, when he says, I'm the good shepherd or the noble shepherd or the honorable shepherd, what he's saying is that there is no danger that will come into the sheep's camp that I will not defend my sheep against. I will lay my life down. Unlike the higher hand who looks for the convenient watch, and when the watch is no longer convenient, he bails. When the watch is at its most dangerous and at its most daunting, I will be right in the pasture with my sheep. And if I have to die for my sheep, I will do that. And then so he did that. He died for his sheep. He says in verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So as a means to secure and unite all of his sheep, 
He lays down his life. He says in verse 16, if I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Did you hear me? As a means to secure the sheep, not just of this fold, but the sheep of all the folds scattered across the world. He said he will lay down his life. He'll die for it. But not only die just to secure them and bring them in, but die to unite them. Do you understand that? Here's the implication for a church like ours. Jesus died for this, y'all. He didn't die to scatter sheep in all these different folds and just let them do their own thing over there because they like their music a certain way and they like their music over here a certain way and we just worship different. No, he died to bring the sheep together wherever they may be. To make them one fold under one shepherd. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. As a reflection of the Father's love to demonstrate his love for the Son. Because the Father loves me, I lay my life down. It demonstrates this perfect harmony between Father and Son. God so loved, God the Father so loved the world. Right? And God so loved his son. And because God so loved his son, the son said, I'll die for him. Do you understand? So the love exuded by the father towards us was matched by the love exuded by the father towards his son. And the son said, because you love me and you love them, I will lay down my life for them. But then it's also a demonstration of his authority in verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And so here's the thing. We see the story play out as if Jesus has lost control and lost authority. We see a man who for the price, who for the price tag of coins and pennies, basically, what it amounts to, in our, and when you think about it, he gives over his Savior to the authorities, Judas. He betrays him with a kiss. And we see soldiers viciously torture him. We, we see him stand before, we see him stand before the, the, the Jewish authorities and Herod. We see him stand before the Roman authorities and Pilate. We see the crowds as they gather around during his trial. And, and, and Pontius Pilate tries to free a murderer or, 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 or actually puts a murderer up against Jesus in order to see if the people will choose the murderer or choose Christ to be freed and released. And the crowds yell, crucify him, not the murderer, but Jesus. Give us Barabbas. And you say, my goodness, he has lost control of this thing. But Jesus says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. In other words, all of this is wrapped up in my sovereign plan. 
you notice that Jesus never was taken, basically, until he allowed himself to be taken. Every time they wanted to take him throughout, he would just find his way out of it mysteriously. And who knows, man, maybe, maybe they would have got buck, right? And, and with Peter, Peter could have whipped out the sword and they, I mean, the knife and machete, whatever he had, and they could have just cut their way out of that thing. I don't know. But, but Jesus says, no, I mean, listen, we're good. We're good. We're good. This is time now. Don't you know that I could call down a legion if I wanted to? We're good. You don't have to do anything. Paul says it like this. He says in Acts chapter four, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so he says all these people were standing up against Jesus saying crucify him, but none of them were standing up against Jesus saying crucify him without you saying, okay, it's time. Does that make sense? As a matter of fact, all of these people were orchestrated by you. You were using all of this evil. For your divine purposes. Jesus said, no one takes my life. And that's what he's pointing to. That his father set this whole thing up. And why did he set it up? He set it up so that he might be glorified ultimately for eternity. But he also set it up so that you might be saved. What a wondrous work our God has done to bring his sheep together. So let us celebrate his work and let us, let us cling to the good shepherd. And when the functional, functional saviors are calling us out of the pen or calling us out of the pastures back into what, what appears to be bearing ground, let us not lose sight of the hope that we have in him. Even when it looks shaky, know that, know that the end is going to be exactly the way he declared it would be. And continue to stand alongside your shepherd. Amen. 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 Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness towards us. And God, we ask and we pray that you would help us. Help us stand with you. Help us, help us continue to walk with you. When our, when our hearts grow weary... Our hope is fading, struggles and trials, empty promises unfulfilled, lack, whatever it may be that may cause our eyes to start looking elsewhere. When that happens, Lord God, and it happens and it will happen, saved or unsaved, may your spirit remind us of the purchase. May your spirit remind us of the blood that was spilled for us. May your spirit remind us of the divine and sovereignly appointed sacrifice that you planned and you orchestrated in order that you might be glorified and that your sheep might be forever worn into your fold. Father, help us keep light of that. Help us stay mindful of that and help us live that out, Lord God. Help us live that out. We love you. We thank you. And we give you praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.